At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Anthony Fury. Welcome to the latest episode of Full Comment. I am so looking forward to this conversation with our next guest, but I'll confess that I've struggled with how to properly introduce a man such as Michael O'Dane, who is perhaps one of the most fascinating people in Canada. How do I begin? We can talk about how in 1961 he was jailed for several months in Mississippi for sitting in a blacks-only section of a restaurant in protest against racial segregation laws. Or maybe about how he once found himself wedged at the same table between Charlie Chaplin and James Bond creator Ian Fleming at the, at the same hotel in Jamaica. Or the time he fed the sick alongside Mother Teresa. Or it's also quite an interesting story to learn that Tommy Douglas considered him too radical at the founding convention of the NDP and told him to put away that adoring photo of Fidel Castro. And I, of course, shouldn't leave out the part where he then goes on to create Polygon Homes, one of British Columbia's largest home builders, and was so successful at it such that the other month he was able to donate $100 million to the Vancouver Art Gallery. Michael O'Dane has recently released his memoir, One Man in His Time, and he joins us now to discuss his life, his work, and offer us some insights on the big themes of our time. Mr. O'Dane, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you. How are you today? I'm great. I really um, enjoying the winter conditions here in uh, Vancouver and uh, just just uh, uh, in my office and um, very thankful to be in my office at my age and um, got lots of things to do. I, I know you've written in the book many times, you've said people approach you and say, how did you go from A to Z? How did this life trajectory occur? And, and when you hear introductions such as the one that I just gave, wh what are you thinking when people, when people summarize your life? Well, um, you, you mentioned that uh, you found my, uh, my life somewhat uh, fascinating. And of course, I, I don't really um, regard it uh, as that. I, I um, in many cases, um, um, I had no no plan, and um, I, I uh, often I, I stumbled into situations, and um, and uh, that's the uh, that's been what's happened in my my, my life, and it's uh, I've been very fortunate, and and um, and to, to have met a lot of interesting people, and uh, tried my hand at. Uh, uh, a good many different uh, things in life, some of which um, have uh, worked out um, uh, much better than uh, than others. So, um, as I say, it's 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 just been a, um, a, a, a I'm very thankful for um, what what uh, I, uh, the world uh, and the the cards that Lady Luck has has uh, dealt me. 
You had a period in your life where every major life decision you made, you would not make it until you flew to Thailand to consult with a Buddhist monk who resided in a small town. How did you get into that trend? Tell us about that. Well, again, it was, um, wasn't a planned thing. It just happened one day, but I agreed to go along with um, someone who, who wanted their um, fortune told by um, the, the abbot of this um, small um, um, temple uh, called Wat Poyai, uh, uh, Po Yai, and, and um, it, uh, it, uh, I was um, sort of called forward. I, I was only there to watch. I wasn't really interested in any hocus pocus, but um, uh, what happened, I was called forward, and um, I guess he casted my horoscope using the um, Chinese way of looking things, and he looked at my hands and he looked behind my ear for some reason, this and that. Then he wrote a, a, um, a, a, um, a bunch of uh, things in Thai, which I, I had uh, translated um, later because although I, I developed uh, some familiarity with um, speaking Thai, I, I never developed any ability to read it. And, um, but, but, uh, and so um, he, he he forecast a few things for me, and just so happened that um, when we visited him and, and over the space of a few years, uh, pretty well everything he, he told me uh, has uh, worked out and uh, come true. So um, uh, he, he's no longer around uh, uh, um, at the moment, but uh, uh, he's, he's passed on to the um, next stage in life as, as Buddhists. Um, um, I believe, uh, but uh, he did play a role in my my life. I I, I followed his decisions, and uh, and they haven't. Um, I, I think uh, it's uh, been been quite fortunate in that respect. The major anecdotes in your life take you to various parts of the world, including in Mississippi, where you were the guest of their jail system for several months for protesting segregation laws. Tell us what inspired you to do that, and what happened. Well, I, I, I should correct you and say it was um, uh, several weeks that I was in the um, Mississippi uh, State Penitentiary, um, not uh, several months, but um, I, I did um, experience their hospitality and their um, cuisine and um, that sort of thing, and, and saw some pretty rugged um, things happening there, but... Um, I, I was actually, um, again, I uh, sort of fell into the situation because I was um, doing some uh, research work for um, uh, my sociology course in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, I, elect, I was suggested I could go there and do some things because I, I um, was ill when the um, exam for the course uh, was held. And, and so if I wanted to pass, I had to go do something, so I, I took a bus to Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, for a, about a week, I, I talked to people there and 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 did some um, did some social research, and then I heard what was going on in the Freedom Rides at the time, and so I thought, well, I'll test the uh, U.S. interstate bus system, which had been um, uh, apparently um, uh, under the uh, August uh, ages of um, uh, Senate uh, Attorney General Robert Kennedy had been de desegregated, but um, 
uh, I tested it as far as Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, I certainly found that Jackson, Mississippi had not been desegregated when I went to um, try to have my dinner at the rest stop in the, in the bus station, and um, that's when I was um, arrested and uh, charged with a breach of the peace, and that's in jail. That's when I met a lot of the other um, so-called uh, freedom writers and had a quite an um, interesting experience. Hearing your stories about that decades ago brings to mind recent protests for racial justice, recent concerns, discussions that people have had over these issues. Looking back at what happened decades ago, looking at the conversations we have today, what do you think about the current debates and and passions around these issues? Well, I'm not uh, too close to it uh, at the moment. Um, um, The... um, I, I did go back with my daughter to, I think it was the 40th anniversary of the Freedom Rides. I went back to um, to Jackson and um, I, I was, um, uh, you know, uh, pleased to see that the mayor of the, the city and, uh, and I think even the governor of the state, but definitely the mayor of the city was black and, and we were um, very much entertained by the um, Afro-American community uh, down there. But, uh, and, and that was, uh, you know, a lot of people um, say they, they remembered me from, from jail. I, I, I must say, I didn't remember a lot of them, but they, they came up and said they remembered me. But, because uh, I, I guess I'm always a bit of an oddball, and I was an oddball, the only Canadian. But um, I, I, I think that um, things have definitely changed. Um, at, at that time, at the time of, um, we were all in, inspired by uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And it was very much a, um, a movement at that time of both uh, black and, uh, and, and white people together, uh, black and white together. That was the, what, what um, uh, Martin Luther King would often uh, say. And, um, but um, uh, today it's uh, become more of a, um, uh, the black lives matter. I, I, I think it's, uh, the the, uh, the thrust of it is is carried uh, by the um, Afro-American community and uh, and that's uh, so it's somewhat different and um, but I I, I, I just uh, I don't uh, have any comment on that other than I, I do notice the, um, the 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 difference and it's quite interesting to read about your experiences participating in the founding of the NDP, showing up at their initial convention, and finding yourself yeah. on the more radical end of the spectrum. And of course, there were times in the 60s and 70s where the NDP was much more radical than it is today in terms of having far more aggressive socialist and even communist leanings. But uh, uh, apparently, you were almost a bit too much for Tommy Douglas's liking, I understand. I, I, I'm not sure about that, uh, but... Um, we had a great deal of respect for um, the, the former premier of, uh, of Saskatchewan, and um, uh, he may have been still premier at that time. I can't recall, but but uh, I, I think it was only over one incident where I um, uh, had, um, I guess, the table I was sitting at of young young activists had put up a um, a picture of um, I think it was yeah it was Fidel Castro and. Uh, <laughs> And uh, we were asked to take it down. And then um, I, 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 later I was personally asked by Tommy Douglas to, uh, he said it wouldn't be a good idea to, <laughs> to, to um, 
he didn't want the um, <laughs> NDP cast uh, in, in that kind of light. Was, they were trying to move to the center. It was they they originally called themselves before the convention the New Party, and then uh, it became the New Democratic Party convention, and um, and so um, uh, and that was fine. I'd I'd never really been a uh, I wasn't far. I don't think I was far left because I'd never. Most cases, I'd never been a um, member of the CCF. That was the uh, former name of the party that evolved into the NDP. But I, I met my um, my first wife at that convention, and she she was um, lodged in the same um, house that that uh, we were when we went to the convention. And I think that was 1961, if I recall. One of the things you talk about several times in your book. That led to your transition, I don't want to say away from the activism, but I guess towards what made you become a home builder and, and working on various business projects was what you say is the difference between being interested in ideas and being interested in people. I'm not sure I've ever heard it described that way before. Uh, tell me more what you mean by that. I, I, I'm not sure whether that um, applies to many people, but I... Uh, I, on reflection, I, I certainly um, uh, would uh, think it uh, applies to me because, in in many ways, I, I was uh, converted to to uh, 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 a socialist uh, line of thinking um, more intellectually, uh, and through the um, books I, I read and um, and that sort of thing, and um, and I, I think. Um, at that stage, uh, being young, I was um, not very uh, tolerant of people. I, I didn't um, really know how to um, work with people or, or um, let alone manage, manage them very well. And um, so, you know, we were very interested in um, heady ideas. You know, we were very much um, uh, in the uh, the band, the bomb movement. I was very much involved in that and very much in uh, civil liberties and uh, social justice and um, all that. And we, we saw it a little bit as, I think, abstract ideas based on our, our um, study of history. In my case, uh, a pretty um, good study of the um, of the French Revolution. And, and um, to a lesser extent, I was very much uh, interested in the Cuban Revolution, as the, uh, you'll find out in the book. And... and, and um, but uh, I, I think it was, um, I, I didn't really um, understand that um, uh, whatever you're engaged in in, in life, you, you need to um, really be involved with um, people and, and, uh, and, and uh, be sensitive about the, um, that, that you're dealing with, um, with human beings and not just um, um, metaphysical um, Ideas and and uh, so um, I, I think uh, over time I, I've come um, more uh, more I've given a lot more recognition to the role of um, of people and trying to understand um, where people are coming from and when you're creating social change to um, be sensitive about its um, impact on on people and um, and uh, that that kind of thing if that makes any sense, what I'm saying. It does. And it's interesting that it feeds into another dichotomy in your in your career, in your life, 
which is moving from working in housing in a public sector, not-for-profit capacity with the CMHC federally, you did work in BC, you did work in Ontario, and then becoming a private developer. And you're changing views on on the creation of, of social housing, how it can best be done, how it can be done in a way that, that serves people the best. Tell us about that. Well, um, I, I um, when I was younger, I, I think I... Uh, um, really concentrated on the um, the, uh, the idea that um, home ownership was a, a form of theft and and, um, and uh, that um, we, we would be better to have our housing stock owned either publicly or by um, by cooperatives and, and um, so I, I, I felt that would be a, a fair way to uh, allocate the uh, the housing uh, stock. But um, uh, over time, I, I, I started to uh, recognize uh, the, uh, the the role of um, home ownership and how how, how that is uh, important in, um, in in Canada. And of course, um, during uh, that time when I was getting involved in housing, it's the sort of start of condominiums. Um, we we didn't really have any condominiums uh, to speak of in Canada. Until the early 1970s, and uh, then we, we saw that uh, we we learned that um, you could really split up um, apartment buildings into and uh, townhouse communities into small um, 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 strata lots that uh, people could uh, could uh, invest in and, and, uh, and own individually. And uh, so so um, that was a that was a, a change, but. I was pretty extreme on my view of, um, of, of home ownership to the point that uh, if the first two homes I owned, uh, one was in Don Mills in Toronto and another in Ottawa, um, I refused to, uh, I did buy them, but when I sold them, I refused to use a, a real estate agent and also um, I refused to take any profits. So, wow. Uh, they, they, sold, <laughs> they sold pretty quickly to neighbors. <laughs> And um, uh, and uh, but the third home I, I owned in uh, in in Vancouver um, uh, I, I did um, take a profit um, from that so I guess I was getting um, corrupted by the um, by the late <laughs> late 1970s and of course now is the opposite case and as you know you can't open a Toronto newspaper or Vancouver one or other cities in Canada without the laments about. Uh, rising house prices, people being priced out of the market. There's a lot yes. of calls for for perhaps government to do something, for there to be more affordable housing. We hear that phrase a lot, affordable housing being constructed. I, I mean, speaking for myself as a person who lives in downtown Toronto with a young family and, and, and children, I mean, I certainly see those pressures in my neighbors and, and you know, other people who are still looking to, to get a new home. What what is the solution to this? What is what is the next step? What should people be looking at in terms of housing in Canada? Well, I, I don't know that there is a magic uh, solution, but um, uh, the, the um, certainly um, the uh, the uh, Vancouver area situation, which I'm uh, more familiar with, uh, we really have a lack of um, housing supply. We haven't been building um, enough housing for all the. Um, People who want to come to uh, live in the uh, in in the uh, Vancouver area, and I, I suspect it's the same in um, 
in Toronto, where you've got a massive in um, uh, migration uh, from uh, other parts of Canada and abroad. So um, that's uh, we we do need more um, more more supply. Um, at the same time, I, I, I'm not um, uh, entirely um, uh, uh, a um, someone who uh, believes the only solution is home ownership. I, th I think we do need a, um, a good uh, rental housing um, component. And also I, I continue to um, favor housing owned by um, cooperatives and, uh, and nonprofit um, societies. And in fact, um, uh, our company Polygon, while uh, most of what we build is for the um, home ownership uh, sector, we, we also do um, uh, and, and very happy to to build uh, housing for, um, for for rent and also for uh, uh, nonprofit uh, societies for and, and we work with those societies and also um, with uh, First Nations um, uh, groups to to create um, a wider spectrum of, of housing opportunities. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. We had a very interesting episode on this program a number of months ago with a journalist, Sam Cooper, from Global News. He has a book out uh, concerning money laundering and casinos in Vancouver, focusing uh, predominantly on gangs from Asia and, and organized crime from there. And there was some stuff on real estate, and there's been much discussion about uh, foreign purchases in Canadian real estate, particularly focused on B.C., to what degree do you feel that is an issue? To what degree do you feel that government remedies, I understand there's there's taxes on foreign purchases being introduced and perhaps ratcheted up. Uh, what are your thoughts on that whole issue? Well, I, I think uh, generally the the, uh, the the foreign uh, buying, uh, which was blamed for, um, uh, a lot of people blamed for our high housing prices, uh, uh, that really, um, I, I don't think there was... Uh, the, so particularly in uh, in uh, what generally speaking i don't think uh you can just blame it on um, on foreign uh, buyers I, I mean we are a very major um, uh, often uh, we are the largest um, builder of um, of uh, multifamily housing in in uh, british columbia uh townhouses and um, apartments and um, and uh, i would say um and we we track we we have to track our buyers, and I I would say, only about uh, one or two percent of them are, uh, are are what register as foreign nationals. Um, so um, it, it may have been more a couple of years ago, but uh, even then it wasn't. It was certainly less than than five percent. As I say, certain neighborhoods may have experienced higher rates of of buying, but um, uh, uh, and there is a 20% um, uh, tax on uh, foreign uh, buyers in British Columbia at the present time. 
So um, yet the while we this tax pertains, that has not slowed the um, the the uh, growth of um, uh, of uh, house prices and and rents. Unfortunately, uh, that that hasn't done it. Whether it's your travels around the world or or your capacity as a home building, I know you've looked at macroeconomic issues. You've you've taken a keen eye on the economy, what's going on around the world. There's a lot of anxiety right now about the global economy uh, for various reasons, not the least of which is, of course, the pandemic and all of the different supply chain fluctuations that have happened. What are your thoughts on the future of the economy? I can say as a as a as a father of young children. I know people of my generation are no longer saying that phrase that that we believe our children will have a greater standard of life than we did, which is something that I know our parents and our grandchildren uh, and our grandparents used to say. But now it's it's not clear. We're we're nervous. Well, I, that's uh, that's sad to hear. I, I I'm not aware of that. I I, I think my grandchildren are, are tend to be pretty um, optimistic about the future and. Um, it may be a different future, uh, a future which um, is more oriented to um, to to the um, environment and uh, preserving the uh, the natural environment and, and those sorts of things, because those priorities are very very high amongst young people. Um, the, the one thing I, I should say, I, I do very much believe in uh, the uh, virtue of um, of economic growth. I I, I I talk to uh, some young people and they say, oh, that, that's uh, economic growth is uh, what the problem is. And mm. no, we, we, I, I don't agree at all. Uh, when, when you measure economic growth, you're, you're measuring not just um, goods, but you're also measuring services. And I think there are, um, even if you think we have enough goods, and I'm not sure that everyone in Canada would uh, agree that we do, but... Um, because we, we certainly don't have enough uh, housing in, in parts of the country where people uh, want to live. But uh, I, I think that uh, we, we, there's a lot more um, service uh, uh, we, we need in, in terms of um, health services, care for, for um, children, daycare services, and, and care for the elderly. And I, I, I see uh, the, the service economy still has a, a long way to, to grow. And, and um, so um, the other thing I, I, I favor economic growth is because um, uh, I was taught by one of my professors, uh, and I think he's probably right at the London School of Economics, is that in a, in a democratic uh, society, if you, if you want to, um, to uh, achieve more uh, equitable uh, distribution of, uh, of wealth, that the way to do it is at the leading edge of the economy. In other words, distributing, redistributing, or, or just plain distributing the, the, the growth in, in the GDP, whether it's uh, whatever it is, 4%, 5%, and biasing that growth towards um, uh, people at the lower end of the uh, scale. And, and because if you're going to, um, to, to uh, take it away if you're thinking of taking it away then you're getting from from the the groups of people in society particularly the middle class who uh, feel they're already um, participating well but uh, then you're moving to more of a revolutionary situation and, and which i think uh, obviously is very unstable and uh, usually uh, 
ends in um, in in some form of violence. So um, I, I think so. I, I do favor economic growth and uh, growth, and and I, I think that's the um, way to achieve um, uh, more um, uh, equality and uh, of opportunity in, in our, our country. At the same time, I, I, I do have views about um, uh, the super rich. <laughs> I, 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 do, um, uh, I do share the view that uh, it's not necessarily a good idea to um, have an economy that allows people to build up uh, uh, dynasties that continue for several generations. When you do that, you, you end up with a often a class of young people who uh, don't feel that they need to um, to work and, uh, and just live off their um, their grandparents' trusts and that sort of thing. I, I don't believe in that either. I, I think that um, uh, it's fine for uh, people to uh, be able to keep uh, what they, um, uh, through their ingenuity or through their um, hard work, they, they earn in their lifetime. But um, I, I, I do have a... a concerns about them passing it uh, uh, down to generation after generation. I don't think we need that in Canada. And, um, we, we need ways to um, incentivize the people, I think, to um, in, their, in their own lifetime to um, uh, engage in, uh, in philanthropic um, activities to support those uh, causes that uh, interest them, whether it's uh, universities or um, hospitals or the, the tr- tremendously good work that is done in the um, in the charitable sector, and I guess you are practicing uh, what you preach. I know because I mentioned your your one hundred million dollar donation to the Vancouver Art Gallery. So uh, you have a lot of interest in in philanthropic activities yourself. Yes, I, I, I have. It's it's become a, a great interest in my life, and uh, I, I, I you know, and I, I um, often I don't like to put my name on on. The, donations like that, but uh, they tell me that if you do use your name, it does encourage, uh, it tends to more encourage other people and uh, to, to uh, get involved and, and to, to, uh, to, to think about their um, responsibility for their, um, their fellow citizens. Uh, and uh, we, 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 um, we, 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 we have a great uh, interest. And then when I say we, it's, it's uh, my family, uh, both my uh, wife and my um, children, grandchildren share, share the interest. I've got to end on a gossipy note because I, I teased in the introduction your dinner with both Charlie Chaplin <laughs> and Ian Fleming at the same time in Kingston, Jamaica. What, what was that like, hanging out with these two gentlemen and Charlie Chaplin? I understand he wasn't always, sometimes in personal life, he, he, he could be a little bit sullen. He didn't always act the role of the, of the film guy. <laughs> Yes, I, I didn't exactly know who was coming to dinner that night. Uh, I was staying at a um, resort in uh, Ocherias on the north coast that um, my my stepfather um, what was uh, involved in. I guess he um, represented the uh, owners of the uh, resort, and, and uh, so they, they organized a, a dinner party, and I wasn't really briefed exactly. I, I knew that Charlie Chaplin was coming, but I, I didn't know that... Um, Ian Fleming was um, coming, and uh, I'm not sure that. Um, but but my mother turned out to um, have known, uh, have met Charlie Chaplin before on more than one occasion, and um, she knew his uh, his wife of, of that period, and 
and uh, also he he uh, he often went to um, my grandfather's restaurant. My father my grandfather had a restaurant in London in the uh, in the 1920s or or 30s when uh, particularly the 1920s I think Charlie Chaplin was uh, becoming a, a very well known uh, film star and 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 so um, there was an interest there and um, in in Fleming. Um, of course, I, I, I was amazed because I'd already read some of the uh, James Bond um, novels. So I, I was uh, absolutely fascinated to, to meet him and then uh, to be invited the next day to uh, visit his, um, his house, uh, which was along the coast uh, somewhere. And, um, and he, he explained uh, where he wrote his, uh, he showed us the, where he wrote his novels. We saw the famous... Um, Olivetti typewriter he used, <laughs> and and so I was um, uh, most interested in 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 that. But um, I, I was um, yeah. So um, that was a um, interesting dinner. But I I, I think probably I, I hardly said a word at the, the, the dinner. I was um, kind of stunned and very shy at that at that time certainly. It's a remarkable anecdote, and your book One Man in His Time is is full of such really amazing stories about your travels and other remarkable things that you have done. Michael O'Dane, thank you very much for joining us today for the conversation. We appreciate it. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Prue with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.